Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Hey everyone, welcome to our third podcast at the end of the day. This is really a show about the lost art of medicine for those of you who are dissatisfied with status quo in healthcare. My name's Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek, and as always, I'm joined by my two co-conspirators, Wes and AJ. Hey Andy. <laughs> well, you know, I figured I'd uh, see if anyone caught that. Well, that's good. We're, we're spreading the conspiracies of truth, love, and reaching our extent to the stars above. Exactly. How are you guys doing today? It's another beautiful Friday morning. That's right. Friday morning, 8 a.m., pot of coffee at hand. We're good to go. Absolutely. So I think I'm just going to go ahead and uh, jump right into our first topic today, if that's okay with both of you. Yeah, please. Let's do it. All right, so I'm actually going to frame this slightly different than maybe we have up to this point in time. So I want you guys to imagine yourselves. There's a debris that needs to be cleaned and you've been handed a gas mask, gloves, lead lined boots, and you've been instructed to fling this debris off of a roof edge. Uh, you've also been told to keep your exposure do not touch the garbage or the debris that you're flinging off. You've only got so much amount of time to be in there and to do the work. And then as soon as that timer's up, you're supposed to like rush off and end your job. But making sure not to like touch anything or anyone. Is that something you guys would like sign up for and, and do? Or is that something that you guys might be a little bit like hesitant for? I think you had me at lead, lead lined boots to say what's going on here. Yeah, I would want to know what that debris or so-called debris is. I think there's there's more questions than uh, All right. answers here. Yeah, it, exactly. So, so there was a really great article in The Atlantic talking about America's inescapable offices. And really, it's about sort of the pandemic that we live in today and the fact that there is this work from home order and now as states are opening up, they're allowing and having more people go back to the office. And so what the journalist did is she started out by actually kind of painting this picture of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor and having people actually go in and sort of clean up this debris. And she referred to them as bio-robots. And I thought it was, it was clever because she's making the analogy of sort of asking people to go ahead and clean up the, the disaster at Chernobyl to sort of what's going on with the pandemic. I guess I didn't really think of framing it that way, but it is kind of what we're doing. I mean, we're telling people at one point, hey, you need to stay home, work from home, figure out, you know, sort of what your setup is. And now all of a sudden there's this magic cloud that is lifted. And, you know, we've told people keep six feet apart, 
Make sure you wash your hands, disinfect. If you're gonna be in a high traffic area where you can't keep that social distance, please wear a mask. But yet, it's, it's good to go back to the office and it's good to go back to work. I myself was talking to a couple of my other colleagues to hear that you know they've been in that situation where they're going back to work, they're working their eight to five, they're in conference rooms. The interesting thing about it is that they acknowledged the meetings in their conference rooms Everyone takes their masks, but no one's wearing them. Their masks are on top of their laptops. They're next to them. They're on their phones. Oh, that's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so what? What? How, how are you guys feeling about this? What do you think of sort of the analogy? Are you guys hearing similar things in your circles? So where I'm working, I work at a co-working space, and... I'm actually going to be working from home again starting next week because we're getting into the routine of our eldest going back to elementary school and the potential for it being 100% distant learning. So we're going to start getting that routine set up. Here at the co-working space, people, when they're sitting at their desk, might have their mask off, but all of the desks are at least six feet apart. And the second you get up from your desk, they expect you to put your mask on. And it's just been very compliant and when i have meetings with people masks are on this is a very easy thing to understand and a very easy thing to comply to one thing that i find really odd is our local gym that i that our family has a membership with has complied to the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law with masks and what that means is when you register to have a time to be at the gym because you have to pre-register and sign up for a specific block of time and where you're going to be. So whether in the pool, at the basketball court, the weights, the treadmills, whatever, they say you have to wear a mask until you get to your designated zone and then you can take your mask off. So I'm sitting there trying to reconcile the fact that I'm going to be sweating and playing basketball with people. And the last time I checked, basketball is not played at a safe distance of six feet apart from each player at all times and when I do free weights I know how much I spit and grunt and that kind of stuff and I don't want the other people around me not wearing a mask and I've I went once a few weeks ago and I was one of five people out of over a hundred wearing a mask while working out and that was the last time I went I'm I'm not going back until this is done so I'm working 100% remotely from home currently, but again, you know, talking to colleagues and a lot of my colleagues work in the radiation oncology space, you know, they never got a break from it. So when you talk about these bio robots that were forced to come in and pick up the debris after Chernobyl, you know, that's kind of what a lot of my colleagues have been going through. During the pandemic, when a lot of businesses started shutting down, the economy started shutting down and people started working from home, my colleagues were still in the clinics taking care of patients. Again, they took appropriate precautions. They were wearing gloves, they were wearing masks, they were disposing masks frequently. But you know, you just never know what you're gonna walk into and which patient has it and how easy it is to contract, uh, especially being in, you know, in close spaces, in close proximity to other patients. 
I think this actually kind of, you know, if, if we take the initial analogy or, or sort of picture that, you know, I painted with Chernobyl, I think the transition to medicine is is probably one of the most appropriate direct correlations. And in this article, the, the journalist doesn't get to what it's like to be someone that's working inside of medicine. I think, you know, as you're sharing that, the light bulb kind of goes off for me and is like, wow, this, this is a direct correlation. So here's the next question to it. So if in medicine, our frontline staff, the people that are responsible for patient care, physicians, nurses, therapists, the front office staff, the environmental service workers, everyone that's sort of responsible for just the function of a hospital or a clinic to, to provide care. So they're in this situation, they're kind of the, the bio robots. But then you've got an entire other cross section that is responsible for back office. You've got your frontline managers, you've got your leadership teams and whatnot. What do you guys think? For the most part, the, the back office, your managers and your your executives can work from home. Should they be working from home or should they be joining arm in arm with the, the other frontline workers to show solidarity in their leadership? What do you guys think? I think that's a really good question, Andy. I mean, you know, the way that I've and I've managed departments and the way that my leadership style was always to lock arms in arm with the teams, get out in front and, you know, help them treat patients, jump on the linear accelerators as needed. But what good are you if you're only helping spread the disease and the germs when you don't have to be there? I think it's a, it's a tough decision to make as a as a manager. I mean, I think if you have zero patient contact and you are not a direct frontline manager, maybe you don't have to be. And I don't think a lot of executives are coming into work every single day and they're u- utilizing modified schedules. But for a direct line worker, I think that's, uh, or at least a direct line manager, I think that's a difficult position to be in. How, what is your management style? How do you do it? Do you have any additional health concerns or health risks that put you into a higher category of, of contracting COVID? I think that's what it comes down to and how you're going to lead your department. I think I stand with the West on that. It's doing the right thing is sometimes counterintuitive to profit-driven business. But I think at the end of the day, you need to do the right thing because this is a pandemic. This isn't a flu season, cold season. This is something that will kill people. And over 140,000 people have died and it should be taken seriously, which I don't feel like culturally speaking, it's been taken as seriously as it should be. One, I agree with you. And two, I'm so proud that I got you to say at the end of the day without even realizing it. Oh, no, I did, didn't I? (laughs) So my thoughts are on it are very similar to yours, OS. You know, I go back to when I was leading oncology service lines and departments and I was I was a working leader like I was jumping on a machine. I was helping into symmetry. I would help triage patients. I'd help like wherever that sort of needed to to happen and occur, I was always there. And that's the way that I sort of led. I led by example, you know, I'm here with you. I'm going to fill in. I'm going to help out. And that was always my leadership style. It kind of still is. And so I think in this situation, the way that I would probably go about it is I would probably have a discussion with the team 
and have an open dialogue about it. You know, how does how does everyone feel about that? Do they feel that it does more harm than good or not? And work through that scenario. And if it did sort of come to the conclusion that for our patients, for our staff and for our morale, that it's best for me to work from home, then I would do that and sort of figure out another way to be present and, and lead. So, so that's the way that I would go about it. But here's where I kind of want to tweak the question now. There are a number of workers that help hospitals, clinics, anyone that is providing care to patients work. But oftentimes their work, they come to the office, but technically there's nothing stopping them from their work being able to be done remotely yet at home with an internet connection and whatnot. Should those employees, should they have a choice whether they can come to the office or if they stay at home and do their work. In my experience and in what the science is showcasing is that when you have a work environment that's results oriented, it doesn't matter where the person is as long as you are judging the metrics based on the results, meeting goals, meeting deadlines, then you have happier, more productive employees. So if people that are in non-critical positions don't have to interface with patients face-to-face, then why not? We have a work ethos that's still rooted back in the Industrial Revolution where we needed butts and seats and to see you toiling away. And with all of the advances in technology, we are more productive than we've ever been in human history It should be a very simple matter of, yeah, I can sit at home on my computer and help schedule patient visits, just as good as sitting in an office in front of a computer doing that. Yeah, AJ, I think you make a great point. And I'm going to reference two large tech companies. One is Google that has decided to keep all of their employees home until summer of 2021. So they're already ahead of the curve. They think no one's going back to the office. And then you have Facebook that it's shifting tens of thousands of employees to work remotely. And they're vowing that about half of the workforce at Facebook will be working remotely within five years. So we see tech shifting in that direction. My colleagues that I've been talking to in medicine and the radiation oncology space, they're also shifting towards that direction in a modified fashion. And what I mean by that is the administrators and the managers that are not frontline are working remotely from home or coming into the office one day a week or two days a week as needed. You have support staff using telemedicine and you have physicians working from home utilizing telemedicine so instead of having a consult day where they're coming into the clinic they're doing those remotely from home you have physics and dosimetry staff that are working from home but you know that becomes a little bit of a slippery slope because the rules mandate and the laws govern radiation oncology space mandate that you have to have a physicist on site when performing certain procedures so when that comes up then how do you shift your schedules do you allow one physicist to be on site for a week and then you rotate so if you have six physicists in a department you'd be coming in once every six weeks or do you modify it so that you have one person coming in once a week i think a lot of clinics are taking this type of approach and it seems to be working well and i think you know as we progress this is going to become our new norm it brings up a, a really good point os because there's also those clinics that 
they only have a single physicist. And so not only is it all on that one person to, to be there day in and day out, but then it's sort of the, well, what is the emergency plan? What is the backup plan if that physicist ends up having the unfortunate experience that they do become impacted by COVID. There's a lot of intricacies that, that go into this. I know for for me personally, I think everyone pretty much knows that other than traveling and being on the road, for the most part, I've worked remotely for 10 years now. And I've always been a big proponent for unless you need to go to the office, because sometimes the connection and the work and the brainstorming that can happen when people meet together in a physical space and connect, when that needs to happen, I think that's fine and that's appropriate. But for just sort of the day-to-day work and meetings and whatnot, I've always found the ability to do it remotely through our technology and our tools to actually be more productive for for myself specifically. So this morning, Seth Godin just published a new blog as he does every morning, but I thought this one was very appropriate. So I'm just going to quick read it to you guys and, and you guys can kind of give me your thoughts on it. But the title is Weasel decisions. One way to make a decision with a team or a partner is to clearly make a decision, have a budget, do the math, lay out the risks and the options and decide with intent. The other method is to weasel your way forward. Act as if, be presumptive, hide relevant facts or conceal your fears. Avoid talking about the real issues, figuring that you'll figure it all out as you go. When you are uncomfortable with here, and it's really tempting to want to be there, it's easy to weasel your way forward. It feels urgent and appropriate, yet it rarely is. When I read that this morning and the article of working from home, that kind of struck me because I think in a lot of instances, not all instances, but in many instances, I think weasel decisions is exactly what's going on. I don't think that the intent sometime is to have all the facts, to be transparent, to have an open dialogue, and to make the right decision. I think a lot of what we're seeing and witnessing right now about decisions on work from home, is it okay to go back? Is this, you know, sort of opening back up, having butts and seats and whatnot? are weasel decisions. It's decisions that we're not going to be as productive if we don't get back to working the way that we always have. This is the way that we've always done it. If I can't see someone, am I aware of them being productive or are they sort of manipulating the the time and the schedule and doing other things versus doing the the work that I need them to do? And so to to me, I think there's a, a direct correlation between Seth's article and this notion of working from home or getting people back to work. How do you guys feel about that? AJ, I'll let you go first. It's very hard to argue against Seth Godin because he's got so much experience and understanding with how to make things work. And with honesty and transparency, there may be some short-term ramifications and consequences, but in the long run, it always works out. Because without honesty and transparency and being able to have those conversations, you just lose in the end 
that's that's just where I stand for that. It's it's just easy. Plus, I'm terrible at remembering what facts I'm trying to keep hidden from people, so I just would rather just be upfront and honest and, and transparent at all times. You know, the expression I associate with what you just presented, Andy, is sometimes better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. And when you t look at it that way, you know, if as long as the, the ultimate goal is for the good of the department, the you know, the good of the company or whatever you want to call it. Sometimes you have to make those difficult decisions and sometimes it's better to work in silos just to kind of cross the finish line and see an end result that is going to be hopefully beneficial for the entire organization. I can see why he says sometimes you need to weasel your way in. I think it is fairly telling as to what's happening right now where we don't have all the information. We don't know exactly how the virus is working and, you know, what's happening behind the scenes, but, you know, we are still moving forward. You both have really good, good points. And I think, you know, for me uh, personally, this is, this is about having facts. It's about giving people the ultimate choice based on those facts, things that are going on sort of in the current present time and making the best choice at the end of one for that individual. And so I'm going to end this with just a reminder that if we go back to the original story about Chernobyl, Deputy Commander of the USSR's Civil Defense Forces at that point in time, Nikolai Anov. Forgive me because I probably butchered that. Before his sort of soldiers and team went out there to, to clean, he even told them, I'm asking any one of you who doesn't feel up to it or feels sick to leave the team. Now, it's probably debatable if that was truly a question coming from a major general or if he actually gave people the, the choice, but at least the facade was there. When all of this wraps up, I think it's really going to be about giving people the, the facts that they need, having an open and transparent conversation about it, and giving people the choice and the options. I agree. So, Wes, why don't you take it away with our, our next topic real quick on why in the world haven't we beaten COVID? So there was an article published in Wired magazine on July 29th, where the author, Stephen Levy, actually interviewed Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the director of NIH and the leader of this pandemic. He's actually served under six different presidents advising them on how to deal with pandemics and viral outbreaks, including AIDS and SARS. So. This interview was conducted less than a week after Dr. Fauci threw out the first pitch for the baseball season. Now, I'm fairly certain the opening pitch did not go as, as Dr. Fauci was planning. However, shortly after his opening pitch, he was featured on a Topps baseball card, which became the best-selling baseball card in history. So we're going to go into what this interview asked of Dr. Fauci and what Dr. Fauci's response was for this entire pandemic. The interview opened up asking about Major League Baseball preparing for baseball for months and then found that going into it, into the opening days, they found a crisis within five days. And what is Dr. Fauci's thoughts on this? And Dr. Fauci responded, I quote, we're about five to six months into this outbreak in the United States and we're still learning. And then Dr. Fauci goes on to say, I think in good faith, the baseball industry tried their best to see if they can open and continue an abbreviated season with protocols in place. And they are doing that, but to see 12 to 18 people on one team getting infected is disconcerting. 
than the interviewer proposed. If Major League Baseball is unable to control the spread of COVID-19, how are schools going to take on this Herculean task? And Dr. Fauci's response was, as a broad principle, we should try our best to get the kids back to school because the negative unintended consequences of keeping kids out, like psychological health and nutritional health of the children, and to working uh, parents that are unable to adjust their schedules. The default position, in Dr. Fauci's words, is to try to return children back to school. While we open schools back up, you have to ensure the safety and welfare of the children, of their teachers, and secondarily, of the families of the children. I'm going to take a pause on the interview here and ask you guys, what are your thoughts about children returning back to school? What are you guys going to be doing for the upcoming school year with your children? And what has been um, allocated within your districts and has a decision been made? That's a good question, Wes. And I'll jump in real quick because this is something we were just discussing last night between my wife and I. And I will say too, uh, my good friend who works at the co-working space with me and manages it, his son recently returned back to school because he goes to a, a different type of uh, school structure. And he said the difference between one day back at school was enormous with his son's attitude when he came back home. He didn't recognize his son at first because he was just so much more calm, relaxed. There was that sense of structure in the day. And being a preteen, he's starting to see his parents as a bunch of uh, know-nothing morons as teenagers tend to see their parents. So getting back into that structure of authority and a, a structured day has been super beneficial in just one day. And he noticed a huge difference. And in Minnesota, they are using a data-driven model for each county and each school district to say how many confirmed cases of COVID-19 per 10,000 will determine the type of reopening structure for the school. So right now, we are in a very low district of cases. So for elementary students, it is a back to school every day, but everybody will be wearing a mask. And for middle and high school, they are at the discretion to choose a hybrid model or full-time back. So right now, our school district hasn't officially announced what they're going to do, but we do have the option for our daughter as a first grader to go back to school full-time and be there amongst friends and teachers and wear a mask every day. As a parent, I'm very excited for that, not only for the mental relief of having a few hours to ourselves, but also the ability for her to see friends, interact with other kids her age, and have that sense of structure again in her life. You know, we do our best. But with two working parents, it is not an easy thing to have a consistent, regulated, structural day, day in and day out. Where I live, there's literally, I don't know, probably 10 different school districts uh, within a 10-mile radius. Uh, And it's interesting because each one of them is sort of approaching it slightly different. I know for my daughter, who's going into sixth grade, there were two options. You could either do all virtual or all on-site. But yet, one of the other school districts, they're doing a hybrid model where it's two days on and three days virtual. Another school district just announced yesterday that they're not going to be opening for the first month or so. And some of the the questions that I had for the school district was, are they going to be doing pre-screening of students? You know, are they going to do temperature checks? Are they going to have a checklist? Is it going to be the responsibility of the school? Is it going to be the responsibility 
responsibility of the parents? What does that look like in the event that, you know, someone does show up at school and isn't feeling well and whatnot? What is the standard operating procedure? And I got the appropriate answers uh, from the, the principal, but there was also the acknowledgement between both of us that it's still a moving target. I emailed on, I think, a Wednesday. Thursday, there was the announcement here in the state of Wisconsin that there's going to be mandatory mask wearing if you're out in public and whatnot. So that means at least until the beginning of October that all students in Wisconsin, if they're going physically on site, are going to have to wear masks. And so that just goes to show the real-time changes that are happening and what the school districts kind of have to to deal with. So I know a lot of their plans aren't finalized yet because they're trying to wait as close to the beginning of the school year as they possibly can. But I know at least for my daughter, the way that she learns and the way that she thrives is she does better in a classroom with a teacher learning amongst her peers than she did in a, a virtual environment. With that, I sort of understand the risks. You know, I think she's educated enough on how to keep your distance, why you need to wear a mask, washing your hands. If you're walking and whatnot, you should, you know, fold your hands together until you get back to your desk, prevents you from reaching and touching anything else. And I know she's ecstatic to be able to to go back to school and and to be with her friends it's truly probably one of the most personal decisions that i've ever had to make so you are comfortable with that decision to send your daughter back to school and aj i'm assuming you're comfortable with that decision as well yeah i i'm feeling better about it i was hesitant a few weeks ago but knowing the data on confirmed cases and how well tracked they are in my school district and how prolific the testing has been. I feel rather confident that the measures will be taken. And the nice thing is uh, our daughter attends a K through two elementary school. So they, they had so many kids they had to split up into two different schools in our area, the K through five school to K through two, and then a three through five. Because of that, it's not as many kids our school district has shown quite a high level of professionalism and responsibility in making sure that the best care is there for the children. Just from that, I feel more at ease. I'm at more ease with the decision than I was, let's say, two weeks ago. There's a part of me that there's a social pact that if we all choose sort of the in-person that we all need to keep that social pack together and there is a symptom checker and it's the responsibility of the parents that you're doing it every day and if you meet the criteria to stay at home that you keep people at home now knowing the facts that people were all humans and humans are not perfect creatures there's that part of me that worries and that's kind of what probably is causing that uneasy feeling. But ultimately, it's about how my daughter learns and what I think is the best for her in sort of this social construct. I just think it would emotionally and spiritually be more detrimental if I was to keep her home in a virtual environment. 
So I completely agree with both of you guys. And in the Mirza household, we're kind of battling the same thing. And, you know, we're going through the same thought process as you guys are. And we're going to move forward uh, in a similar fashion as you guys. But I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. And I'd like to get your thoughts on this. And I, I think, you know, the author of this interview did a really good job of putting these two items back to back and you know really questioning dr Fa uh, fauci on this and i'm gonna do the same with you guys so when you talk about major league baseball and these sports leagues trying to open their season back up and running into roadblocks i mean the nba really took it to an extreme where they created an nba bubble where these athletes aren't allowed to go anywhere they're just in this zone they're tested every single day multiple times a day and whoever gets tested has to leave and they're really controlling the infection controlling where these guys are going who they have exposure to and anyone that's going to be within that bubble is getting tested on the regular basis major league baseball hasn't done that and the nfl hasn't done that either in the major league baseball you've got you know these guys that are investing millions of dollars into this they have a social responsibility and a professional responsibility from their job to make sure that they don't get infected. Yet there were still 12 to 18 people on one team that end up getting infected within the first five days. With that being said, that being the context, how do we ensure our kids are able to follow sim similar principles and practices to ensure that they don't get infected? Because I can tell you, I've got a five-year-old that's supposed to start kindergarten and you know, we have her going to daycare now and the daycare has taken a lot of precautions. They're requiring a mask when you enter the building. They're requiring you to wash your hands. They have a, a hand sanitizing station right outside the front door and then they do a temperature check and they ask you a series of questions about if you've had any exposure to COVID, if you have had a fever in the past you know, seven days, are you on any fever reducing medication? Have you traveled outside of the country or the area? And despite all of these, you know, my daughter tells me as soon as I get through the front door, I take the mask off and we're allowed to play together. So how do we do that? How do we ensure that our kids are going to be safe when these multi-million dollar organizations haven't been able to figure it out? You know, that's a really good question. And I think the nature of children tend to just accept things as they are. And if you tell them, hey, there's a virus, you have to wear a mask the whole time and you have to wash your hands and sing the ABCs. We've had fairly good compliance. And I think that when you're dealing with adults, they have we have years of routine behaviors. So sometimes our lizard brain kicks in and we just forget something. When you mentioned the NBA, there was one guy who did an Uber Eats order because the I guess the food in the bubble is, is pretty crappy. So he <laughs> ordered an Uber Eats and completely just didn't even realize the security threat that that had for the virus so he wound up having to be in quarantine for two weeks and had to do a public apology when you think of that the options for human error with children in a school setting i find tend to be a lot less because it's a much more controlled environment with more for lack of better words compliant individuals that don't question everything that's being asked of them yeah, I think that's a, it's a good point. I guess for me, you know, when you kind of do the, the compare and contrast, sometimes I think depending on who you are and where you are and sort of how you've grown up, you get to a point where you sort of think like, yeah, it's everyone else or, oh, okay, it's not going to be me. And there's, I'm invincible sort of mentality that, I think often happens, especially in the sports world, 
And that's neither good nor bad. It just kind of is. And when I take that and then I think, how do you apply this kind of back to the kids going back to school and stuff? I've got more trust in children keeping the social pact of keeping your distance, wearing a mask, washing your hands, saying if you're not feeling well, things like that, than I do adults. And that's where the churn or the conflict internally for me happens is that I'm putting a lot of trust into that social pact that the other parents in the community are going to abide and sort of act accordingly. Quite honestly, that's the best that any of us can do is to decide where we're going to place that trust. That's a great answer, Andy, and that's a great segue to the next portion of the interview questions that I want to try to highlight for us. The interviewer then asked Dr. Fauci why the U.S. has done poorly in suppressing this pandemic while other countries have been far more successful. Dr. Fauci responded that there are multiple factors to this question. First of all, other countries, namely Asia and Europe, when they went into lockdown, they did it at about 95% of their respective countries. So they went into full force, brought the infection rate to baseline to tens or hundreds of new cases a day, not thousands. They came down and then they stayed down. What happened in the USA is when we shut down, it was to the tune of about 50%. So as the curve was going up and we locked down, the curve started coming back down. But we never came down to a reasonable baseline. We came down to about 20,000 new cases per day and we stayed there for a number of weeks. Then we started opening up and getting America back to normal. And we saw the case count go from 20 to 30 to 40,000 per day. And then one day last week, we actually hit 70,000 new infections in a single day. Some of the states skipped certain checkpoints and uh, adherence to guidelines, which essentially suggested, suggested a very measured and prudent way of opening step by step. Then the interviewer asked Dr. Fauci, can Americans work together to stop a pandemic or are they unwilling to do that because they are too selfish? So Dr. Fauci responded, Americans aren't deliberately trying to spread the infections. He doesn't think full, they fully realize because infections taking place are now much more disproportionately among younger people. The average age of the people being infected now is 10 to 15 years younger than what we saw in the early phase of this pandemic. A substantial portion of the people who get infected, about 20 to 45%, don't have any symptoms at all. What people don't realize is even if they don't have any symptoms at all, by being careless and allowing themselves to get infected, they are becoming a part of the propagation of the outbreak. They are putting other people in danger by themselves getting infected. You have to have social responsibility. So I ask you guys the similar questions. Do you think that Americans are being selfish and putting themselves first and before the needs of those people that are providing frontline services, such as people in medicine, or such as people working in restaurants, or, or taking care of deliveries, or providing foods and services that we all consume? I think there's a yes and no. When I look at my family, my parents, who are proud when they can get into a building without wearing a mask, there's a, there's a weird sense of entitlement. I think if we look historically, when we as Americans have had large scope cultural changes and demands like seatbelts, the no shirt, no shoes, no service. We have had a definite segment of the population that has rebelled against it. Remember when Colin Kaepernick was shown on a Nike ad, how many people went to social media to show them burning their Nike shoes. We have been a culture historically from day one 
of allowing the fringe in thought, in culture, in science a seat at the table and so we allowed though we have historically allowed those ideas to gain a strong foothold and we are very much in a pendulum swing of anti-experts so we have allowed a lot of people with no degrees with no knowledge to perpetuate thoughts of lunacy um, for instance there's a movement online of throwing a few drops of bleach up your child's rectum to protect them from covid there is an astounding amount of people who believe the earth is flat in this country. There is way too many people with very prominent audiences who believe that no matter how many times you disprove a theory, they still believe it, such as vaccines and their ties to autism. So selfish, in some cases, is the right word. Intentionally ignorant could be another word intentionally distrustful of anything authority has to say and the problem is in minnesota we've had to come to a state mandate to say wear your mask when you go indoors no no more games because you guys can't do it on your own we're gonna have to nanny state you and it's just like dealing with a child that just continually does the wrong thing and you have to say all right now you have to have a timeout and we're at that timeout phase because we just as a culture couldn't get it together and it's become either a political thing, it's become a conspiracy thing, it's become... We've got too many of these fringe believers, like I said, to have a seat at the table and to be given the ability to have just as much authority in what they say as Dr. Fauci. And that's where I think a lot of this, what could be considered selfishness, comes from. My feelings on it are, you know, very similar. What I find interesting is that a lot of the people that you see or hear talking about their rights being invaded or getting away without wearing a mask or I don't know anyone or I haven't seen anyone or the death toll isn't as high or whatnot or they feel that you know this is all going to end you know after the the election are the very same people that if you rewind the clock a year ago and you go and you look at their social posts, they're the same people that are talking about how good they are and how compassionate they are and how caring they are and how they lead with empathy and things like that. And it's kind of like, well, you can say it and you can portray it and you can create an image that makes you think that you are. But when the opportunity presents itself and you're confronted with a choice, to either truly live with compassion and empathy for your fellow human being or not, you're choosing not to. That's truly what we're experiencing right now. I think to the point of the informed ignorant or, or whatever term we wanna to talk about, I remember one of the first physicians I ever worked with, um, Dr. Kadimian. He was an amazing radiation oncologist. Uh, and I remember sitting with him uh, one day and, and he looked at me and he's like, you know, if you want to be a radiation oncologist, he's like, I can, I can show you how to be a radiation oncologist in about two weeks. He's like, you need to be able to read, you need to be able to act, and you need to be able to follow, you know, guidelines. If you can do that, he's like, you can help me do my job better. From that conversation, what he really drilled inside of me is, is that there's 
science and there's kind of the Pareto rule of 80-20 and that's kind of how we go by when we think in terms of evidence-based medicine. But then there's also sort of the other science and that other science is, is that if you want to believe something with the advent of the internet and information readily at your fingertips, you can search and search and search and search until you find that. While that's the, the beauty of science and publications and research, that's also part of the double-edged sword of it. Um, and I think that's a lot. Yep. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt. I'm in a quiet room at the co-working space and someone needs to use it. So if you can just do a quick finishing up of the thought and then the outro, that would be fantastic. And so I think really what we're experiencing right now is truly that end of the spectrum. We've got evidence-based science that is presenting the facts and showing us what to do. And then we've got the other end of the spectrum where I want to believe that this is not true or it's not impactful. And so I'm going to research until I find that. I think that's a, a good place for us to, to kind of wrap up today. As always, I want to first allow my two co-conspirators to sign off and then I'll wrap it up. So I'm AJ Monpettit and you can find me on the socials at AJ Monpettit. And hopefully OS has signed up for something online. How about it? I have indeed. So I'm Awes Mirza, and you can find me on Twitter at Awes F. Mirza. Awesome. And as always, my name is Andy DeLeo. You can find me at the socials as Cancer Geek. And remember, at the end of the day, whether it's making a choice, practicing medicine, or just talking to someone, it's always done at the end of one. Yeah.